Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 196, Robert Hatch's The Passion and Persuasion, Part 1. Robert Hatch is the author of Possession and Persuasion, The Rhetoric of Christian Faith, which was published in 2001, and a book called The Passion and Persuasion, A Biblical Deconstruction of the Evangelical Rhetoric of the Cross, published in 2011. He taught in the English department at Miami-Dade College as a professor of rhetoric and composition from 1991 until retiring in 2015. He now performs as Robert Hand in a trio called Wagner, Hand, and Flug, which performs original and popular acoustic folk rock music in South Florida. You can find some of their music on iTunes and also on YouTube. He's here today to discuss his second book with us, The Passion and Persuasion, which is about a biblical understanding of atonement. Mr. Hatch, welcome to the Trinity's Podcast. Thank you. So, can you tell us about your spiritual journey? I know this played a big part in your first book, not so much your second book, but I think it's an important thing about your life and your thought. Sure. I grew up in a, I guess you could say, a liberal uh, Protestant uh, church, not very active. This was back in the uh, late 50s, uh, 60s, didn't keep me from, 1960s didn't keep me from experimenting with drugs and uh, doing other things that um, wouldn't have been uh, smiled on by the church. But it was um, a liberal Protestant, uh, specifically uh, Presbyterian church. Went to college in uh, the uh, early 1970s and was a uh, long hair, hippie-ish kind of guy. Uh, again, uh, experimenting with drugs and uh trying to figure out what my life was about and burned myself out on that sometime during my freshman year and was recruited into a religious group, a church called the uh, Crossroads Church of Christ in Gainesville, Florida. I was a student at the University of Florida. It was, I would say, a fundamentalist uh, kind of slash evangelical church, except it was quite exclusionary. Uh, we looked at it as our job to uh, recruit not only non or unchurched people, but also uh, people from other churches. We viewed ourselves as the kingdom of God on earth. I have a lot of information about that in my first book. And uh, was trained to be a leader in that system while I was a student at University of Florida, graduated, became a campus minister slash recruiter at Montana State University for several years, moved to do the same thing in Memphis, Tennessee. This was in the early 80s and wound up back in Miami, Florida, which is where I grew up in the mid 80s. And gradually at that point was in the process of kind of studying myself out of that group, which was appearing more and more to my mind to being a, um, a what was called a religious cult back then. I began uh, about 
guess it was the um, late 70s, to um, take the Bible more seriously and kind of in secret, study it more seriously. And of course, once you do that, you're not going to uh, remain in a fundamentalist, sectarian uh, Christian organization much longer. It took me several years, but I kind of worked myself out of that group and uh, eventually out of uh, organized uh, Christianity altogether at the uh, late 80s and went on to uh, write my first book largely about that experience and about uh, the uh, theological uh, doors that that experience opened up for me. And around that time, I went back to graduate school, got my degree in, uh, in English rhetoric, and uh, worked uh, for 25 years in the English department at Miami-Dade College. And toward the end of that time, wrote my uh, second book that we're going to talk about today. So was your experience in that group what led you to be interested in rhetoric, the art of persuasion? Did you feel you had been kind of manipulated or pushed around by, by the leadership? Well, yes, absolutely. And then I had become a leader who pushed other people around. And primarily with the use of language. And I became real interested in the way language is used. My first interest was, of course, religiously, how religious language is used to manipulate and um, even abuse people in the name of God. And uh, as time went on, uh, how language is used just across many different, not only uh, religion, but uh, politics, as well as uh, just other kinds of social uh, manifestations. Of, and this is really what rhetoric is all about. Rhetoric is traditionally the art of persuasion, but it actually refers to just the use of language to affect people's beliefs and behavior. You know, their perception of reality, really, both consciously and unconsciously. And I found that to be tremendously uh, valuable in analyzing my own religious experiences, well as just uh, the history of Christianity as a whole, and uh, beyond that, just uh, uh, the world that we all live in. It's been uh, really beneficial to me in terms of my understanding of my life and of life in the world in general. So when we say rhetoric, that could mean rational persuasion, or it could just mean sort of controlling people by using your your words, not with rational force, but with some other kind of force, yes. like threat or guilt. Or Is this group one of the groups that's known particularly for what they call discipleship, which is very tight kind of mentoring? Yes. The key word is discipling. It essentially consists of an over-under kind of relationship it's, it's a religious form of multi-level marketing. It begins with a person at the very top, and then it uh, works its way down. Every member is under another member and over multiple members, who are each mm. themselves over multiple members as they kind of rise in the system. So it's a very authoritarian approach to uh, which, of course, any kind of sectarian or cultic kind of religious uh, experience is going to uh, involve a lot of authoritarianism as well as sectarianism. 
So if you put a person in an inappropriate situation of control, then I imagine you see all the bad things that human nature can bring out. Yes, you, uh, you see things that you would never have expected to see. What started to get you out, though, was just the intellectual control that you weren't sort of allowed to think for yourself? Well, yeah. I mean, independent thought and any kind of critical thinking really was stigmatized by terms like paralysis of analysis and independent spirit and unsubmissiveness to uh, God's word and God's leaders and and this sort of thing. And I, I, so besides feeling uh, like less than a free person, yeah, for me, I had to pretend, uh, and I, I'm, I'm actually uh, an introvert, and I had to pretend that I was an extrovert in order to uh, survive in that system, which is tremendously psychologically difficult for an introvert to do. I had to do any of my uh, critical and creative thinking in secret. And you can only do that for just so long before you, uh, you get so far away from yourself that you, you don't know who you are. I would think that in a system like that, you'd have to talk a big game and sort of show a certain kind of confident attitude constantly. Is that, is oh, that it's, accurate? It's full of pretense. And the, the thing that makes that um, so paradoxical is that you had to spill your, your guts on a, on a daily basis to your discipler, your, mm -hmm. your superior, not just regarding your behavior, but even regarding your thoughts and your feelings, because they were all considered to be potentially sinful. So mm -hmm. it, it was pretty extreme. And while I, I would say it was far more extreme than uh, most people's experience of Christianity, it's only a difference of degree. It's a quantitative difference, but I don't know that it's nearly as much a qualitative difference as, uh, as you might think. This type of uh, mentoring relationship, if you had this with a really mature person, it sounds like it could be a wonderful thing, but it sounds like they're just kind of trying to mass produce this. Right, yeah. Well, we're not talking about real intimacy here, though. Uh, what you're talking about, uh, what requires... Uh, maturity and real openness and honesty, that kind of uh, emotional intimacy, that's really not what we're talking about here because uh, to have that kind of relationship, there has to be a high degree of self-acceptance, a sense of self-worth to be able to share yourself intimately with someone else. And everything was in that experience was opposed to a healthy sense of self-worth, self-esteem, self-acceptance. It was all about um, dying to yourself. And uh, if you're already a confident person who is able to perform well, and of course that's the basis of that confidence is performance, then you're going to feel good about yourself based not on the fact that God loves you uh, or your belief that God loves you unconditionally, on the basis of your of your performance but if you don't perform that well then you have no basis for any kind of self-worth and so you're uh, completely um, at the mercy of whatever your religious lords uh, want you to do the people in the pyramid above you right 
So, Robert, what led to your writing this book? It's a very uh, densely argued book. It's very interesting. It shows a long engagement with Paul, especially trying to figure out how he views the atonement. So how did you come to write this book? Well, it really goes back to my experience in uh, that uh, religious movement. I, I began to, as I was working myself out of it, understand that if God loves his children unconditionally, then uh, their sense of self-worth has got to be unconditional. And that, in fact, is what's going to motivate them to reflect God's love to others. If I was understanding what the um, New Testament writers said about the death of Jesus on the cross, that that demonstrates that God values not only his children, but all people as much as he valued his son, in that he would sacrifice his son for them. And so this uh, said to me that God's love and therefore one's uh, human worth is infinite and unconditional, and I was seeing anything but that in my religious experience. As the years went on, and even after I left the uh, group, reflecting more and more on this whole idea of God's demanding payment for sin, and that because uh, of God's uh, so-called justice, and how that seemed to contradict the image of a God of unconditional love. And yet, at the same time, seeing that uh, it's clear that the New Testament writers tell us that Jesus paid for our sins. And so that just uh, seemed to me to be a conundrum that had to be figured out, and I just wasn't satisfied with the way that uh, traditional Orthodox Christianity, which is essentially embodied in what's today called evangelicalism, had formulated its theory on that. It was a, a, just a period of years of studying and reflecting on the uh, atonement uh, that brought me to some, what seemed to be obviously unorthodox and yet consistently and eminently biblical ideas about it that I just uh, wanted to, to, to get down in writing because it's very complicated and it's beautifully simple on one level but very complicated on another because of all of the confusion that's been introduced into Christian doctrine by uh, centuries of uh, what I would, I guess, describe as uh, alien foreign ideologies. And so there's just a lot of preconceptions about God and about Christ and about the um, atonement that make it a daunting task to kind of sift through all of that. You say your approach is unorthodox, and I, I guess that's true, but I mean, orthodoxy hasn't laid down a line on this in the way that they did with, say, the Trinity and the Incarnation in the 4th and 5th centuries. Christian thinking about atonement has gone through some kind of different stages, which you do mention. You've read some of the scholarship on that. But let's talk about, I guess, what's really our experience, which is North American, Protestant, evangelical Christianity. What do you think is the standard idea of atonement that's taught in this particular crowd here and now? 
Yeah, well, this is what's interesting about what you uh, what you just pointed out, that really the first thousand years of Christianity, there was no standard idea of atonement. There were different interpretations and different schools of thought that were kind of competing with each other. But then um, in the Middle Ages, uh, this uh, Catholic church leader named uh, Anselm came up with what's called the Anselmian or Latin or legal theory of the atonement. And it's, it's become what I would characterize as the standard idea, the, the orthodox idea of the atonement, so much so that it's viewed by evangelical Christians, most of the vast majority of them, I would say, and their leaders, though I, I don't want to say that there aren't any critiques of this within evangelicalism, but to the extent that there are, they've had very little effect on the overall uh, view and that comes across, first of all, as and, and it's introduced this way, as the bad news. Before you can get to the good news, you've got to present the bad news. And the bad news is that we're sinners who stand condemned before God, whose justice demands that he condemn us to hell. That's the bad news that then sets the stage for the good news. And the good news is in a nutshell, that God the Son, that's Jesus, paid God the Father to forgive sinners so that God the Spirit could make sinners God's children. That's the standard idea. Now, it's an oversimplification, but that's the idea that is presented and that I would say, by and large, that evangelical Christians and because it's so prominent that many others who perhaps wouldn't consider themselves evangelical Christians have been influenced by. Now, I went to uh, an evangelical university, Biola University in Southern California, late 80s, early 90s. And I remember in a theology class being presented with some of the classic lineup of atonement theories. And what I was taught was kind of the real idea, the real New Testament idea of atonement was substitution, that somebody had to be punished because God is perfectly just and his justice demanded that somebody get the full punishment. And anything short of that is just kind of, you know, maybe for liberals or something. <laughs> right. People that are too squeamish or just who refuse to accept the Bible. And um, I remember kind of scratching my head at the time. I, was, I wasn't sure I totally got it, but we didn't explore objections at all to the kind of Reformation style spin, right? So it, it's a legal transaction. His righteousness gets all transferred to your account. We didn't really entertain objections, but now you in this book give an, an objection right up front, which I think is interesting. So before we get into that, Dale, let me just, let me just mention what I think are really important effects of that standard idea of the atonement which is viewed, despite all the centuries of competing ideas about the atonement, it's, it's viewed as if it were what the Bible teaches. Here are a few of the effects of that that I think have got to be taken into consideration, and they make this a pretty practical issue, not just a kind of an ivory tower uh, theological issue. There's a rhetorical effect, and when I say rhetorical, I'm using that term, as we uh, discussed it earlier, how language shapes our conscious and our unconscious perception of reality. And if God is part of our reality, 
then it's going to affect our perception of God. And the rhetorical effect of this idea that God the Son paid God the Father to forgive sins because God's justice required that he be paid, it creates this perception of God, whether a conscious perception or an unconscious perception, of God the Father as a wrathful deity who holds our sins against us, while, on the other hand, God the Son, Jesus, is perceived as a merciful deity who gets us off the hook. And I call this the two-faced God, the God who is torn within himself between wrath on the one hand and mercy on the other, the obligation to make sinners pay on the one hand, the inclination on the other to extend the mercy. This is the perception that the standard idea of the atonement has created, again, sometimes unconsciously, in that believers can do their best to approach God as a loving father, and yet find that, for some reason, unconsciously difficult to do that. There's also a religious effect. The rhetorical effect kind of extends itself to a religious effect, and that's that evangelical churches can both threaten non-members, and not only non-members, but their own misbehaving members, with wrath and condemnation, that's the wrathful side of God, and they can reward their well-behaved members with acceptance and approval. I see this as pretty standard fare for uh, the evangelical modus operandi. There's also a political effect. It's no secret that evangelical Christians voted in large numbers for our president, Donald Trump whose obvious willingness to use violence of various kinds against Americans and, and even other nations. I mean, it's got the world on the verge of nuclear annihilation as we speak. The effects of how this standard idea of the atonement has blanketed evangelical Christianity and now its effects on American society are not just theoretical, but they're quite practical as well. So your idea is that on the standard way of thinking, there's God the Son and there's God the Father. Okay, but they're both just God. So the net result is that God is merciful because he died for you. But then at the same time, he's also demanding, uh, he's this severe, I think you say in the book, a moralist who just will not forgive. He's going to hold you accountable for every last nickel. I mean, he needs to be paid in full. So then he's he's not merciful. He's as demanding as anyone could possibly be. And you're saying that wreaks havoc, that people think God's merciful and he's not? Well, this is where the unconscious thing comes in. On a conscious level, Christians know that God is Father, loving, merciful, but it's going to be impossible to shake this image of God as unforgiving, as wrathful, as uh, condemning, because that's the God of the evangelical doctrine of the atonement, the God who demands payment. So as much as Jesus gets us off the hook by dying for us on the cross and requiring God to show mercy rather than uh, condemning sinners, it's impossible to unconsciously remove that image of God. And that has an effect.
psychologically on people, has a religious effect, that the effect goes far beyond simply let's discuss this um, theological theory of the atonement as if it were something that was far removed from everyday life. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about your central objection then. How does that go? This core evangelical idea, and this, of course, didn't start with evangelicalism, but this goes all the way back to uh, the seeds of this in the early post-apostolic um, Christianity, that God's justice requires that he demand payment for this legal debt of sin. Well, God's justice in the Bible is of a wholly different kind of justice than what we typically think of as justice in Western society. Uh, We have the Roman idea of justice as legal, as retributive, punitive. The idea of justice in the Bible, and I have a chapter on this in the book that gets very specific about all of the biblical support for Old Testament and New Testament support for the fact that God's justice is not legal, it's covenantal. And the difference that makes is huge in that covenantal justice is not the idea of there being a standard that people are either rewarded or punished for living up to or failing to live up to, but covenantal justice has to do not with rewards and punishments, but with promises and fulfillments. God made a promise to Abraham that he would make of him a great nation, and that through Abraham or in Abraham's seed, he would bless all nations. That was God's promise to Abraham. And God's justice, biblically speaking, means that God will be faithful to that promise no matter what. This is why Abraham's believing God was reckoned to him as just or righteous, justice, righteousness. Abraham shared in the justice of God because he believed God's promise. So from the very beginning, and this as Paul points out in Galatians 3, 430 years before the Mosaic law was given, God's justice, before he ever gave a law, was manifested in his promise and its gradual fulfillment. So that's the primary problem with this idea that God's justice require that he demand payment. What God's justice requires is that he be faithful to his promise. And in his sending of his son, in what I'm saying, I'm not denying that Jesus paid a legal debt of sin. I'm not denying that at all, but I'm saying we've got to find another way to understand Jesus' payment of the legal debt of sin than that Jesus was paying God, that Jesus was complying with a demand of God for payment. And so this whole legal debt of sin is really at the heart of the problem, the way it's conceived of and the way it's portrayed by the evangelical doctrine that is at the heart of what's wrong with it. And, and when I say what's wrong with it, I mean not only what's wrong with it in, a, in the sense of its effect on people, but what's biblically wrong with it. Because 
I'm not denying anything that I understand the uh, New Testament writers to say about the atonement. I'm simply suggesting that we've got to find a way to interpret it that's far truer to the New Testament writers than the evangelical uh, rhetoric of the cross is able to, um, to do justice to. So this legal debt of sin, according to the evangelical doctrine, that legal debt of sin must be located in the heart of God. In other words, God is a debt holder. He's been offended by sin, and he holds that debt in his heart, and that debt, because of his justice, his so-called justice, requires him to demand payment for it. And of course, if sinners have to pay, they'll pay by dying. And in the evangel, the typical evangelical interpretation of death is they'll go to hell and, and suffer unending conscious torment. But the, this idea that this legal debt of sin is located in the heart of God, here's the, uh, the, both the logical and the theological problem that that creates. If Jesus had to die, to pay a legal debt in the heart of God so that sinners could be justifiably forgiven. Justifiably meaning God's justice demands payment before he can offer this forgiveness. His forgiveness wouldn't be justifiable if the demand hadn't been met, if the payment hadn't been made. Well, if this is true, then first of all, God is not love as... uh, the New Testament writers tell us, God is law, or at least his law in his nature takes priority over love. And I say that because uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 13.5 that love, I believe the NIV translates, it keeps no record of wrongs. The literal wording is uh, love does not reckon the evil. I think uh, New American Standard says uh, that love does not keep an account of wrongs. Well, God, in fact, does keep an account of wrongs. God, in fact, does keep a record of sins. God does, in fact, reckon the evil if he has this legal debt of sin in his heart that requires him to demand payment before he can forgive. The second problem is that, in fact, if God must be paid before he can forgive, then the reality is God can't forgive at all, because forgiveness, by definition, is the cancellation of an unpaid debt. In other words, forgiveness excludes the idea of payment. If God must be paid before he can forgive, then, in fact, whatever we're calling forgiveness there isn't forgiveness at all. Forgiveness is a initially an economic term. It has to do with canceling an unpaid financial debt. And so that's used metaphorically by the biblical writers to talk about God's forgiveness of his, uh, of his people or God's forgiveness of anyone. Well, it's only forgiveness if it's freely given. It can't be paid for. This is the conundrum that we're faced with when we're trying to understand the atonement, is how can we say, on the one hand, Jesus paid for our sins. There was this legal debt that Jesus paid that resulted in forgiveness, and yet forgiveness itself 
is the cancellation of an unpaid debt. That's a conundrum that the evangelical doctrine doesn't even address. And I'm suggesting in my book that um, it's got to be satisfactorily addressed. It's got to be explained to have a, uh, a an understanding of the atonement that does justice to the um, to the New Testament gospel. problem with the evangelical doctrine is that it assumes then that God had to be reconciled to sinners for salvation to occur, that God had this hardness of heart, this this legal debt of sin, that he, his justice required him to demand to be paid before he could extend forgiveness, before he could love sinners, before he could extend forgiveness to them. You can't say on the one hand, God is loving and unforgiving at the same time. And so before God's loving forgiveness could be extended, he had to be paid. Well, that means that God had to be reconciled to sinners. And albeit he, according to the evangelical doctrine, which is, of course, indivisible from Trinitarianism, that's just part and parcel of the evangelical doctrine, that God the Son paid God the Father. So in effect... God paid himself to reconcile himself to sinners. But this is exactly what the New Testament writers never say. They never say God was reconciled to sinners. They say repeatedly, God reconciled the world to himself. God reconciled sinners to himself. That the alienation was not in the heart of God, but the alienation was in the hearts of sinners. And so if the alienation is is in the hearts of sinners, it's sinners who need to be reconciled to God. But nowhere do the New Testament writers tell us what the evangelical doctrine of the atonement must mean, and that's that God himself was alienated from sinners, that God had to be reconciled to sinners for for, uh, reconciliation to take place. What I sort of view as the core of the objection is that a debt can either be forgiven or paid off, but you can't do both. That definitely seems right for literal debts. I can't go around saying I've forgiven your loan if, in fact, you've paid it off. Like, that would be a lie. I have not forgiven it at all. And there is something baffling about the popular atonement theories, which is that God is supposed to be so perfect that he's unable to forgive in the way that you and I forgive. We frequently forgive without demanding anything like full compensation, right? We might ask for a token of sorrow or repentance or something like this, but I mean, say um, you gossiped about me behind my back and like, what would compensation amount to? I mean, it's never going to be undone. Money can just be transferred, but... right. 
There's no real paying back. I mean, what's been done has been done, and there's no changing that. You could sort of try to do some things to repair it sometimes, but even then, you don't get fully compensated. So it seems to me that when we forgive, we are always just taking a loss in a sense, like we're never getting fully compensated. But now God, because God is morally perfect, can't do this. Now, I wanted to go back to something you said earlier the Abraham achieving the righteousness that's by faith. So Abraham did not do that by keeping the law perfectly because the law hadn't been given at that point. Right. And as you point out in the book, what Paul's doing is he's undermining the idea that the law is eternally necessary. He wants to say that the law has accomplished its work and now we can get along without the Mosaic law And so he's pointing out, hey, there was a time before there was a Mosaic law, and the righteousness that Abraham achieved was simply by trusting God. That was the reconciliation with God. So he was counted as in good standing. Yeah, and and I I would even say better not to use the word achieved, but rather received. In other words, God reckoned it to him as righteousness. This covenantal relationship of righteousness was God's promising Abraham and Abraham believing the promise. And so he received that righteousness. He was reckoned to be righteous because he believed the promise. That's what covenantal justice, covenantal righteousness, which really are the same Hebrew word, the same Greek word, translated both justice and righteousness. That's what they're all about. So if I forgive you for gossiping about me, That doesn't seem to be an act of injustice or some kind of moral wrongdoing on my part, right? Morality or injustice do not demand that I, so to speak, get every last penny out of you before I forgive. It seems like a good thing. It reflects well on my character if I'm just willing to take that loss, right? Uh, So why does it count as a good thing if God has to demand every last bit of payment And part of your point in the book, I think, is that it's not morality or justice that demands a death penalty for sin, but it was the law. Right. And so Jesus was meeting a demand of the law in dying is part of your point. I mean, I think we understand how this works according to morality and justice. It's not a violation of of, uh, objective universal justice if I forgive you without full payment, nor is it morally wrong that it doesn't show me to be a bad person to some extent if i forgive you you know at least if you're repentant or something maybe maybe not just willy-nilly but anyway repentance isn't a payoff let me add one one aspect to this though that i i think may make it more relatable the reason that the god who demands payment kind of answers something or rings true to something in ourselves in human nature is that even though when we're offended by someone, we can't demand some kind of payment that would exactly satisfy the offense that that person had given us, we try to make people pay. We try to make them pay by giving them the silent treatment. We try to make them pay by possibly uh, chewing them out. We uh, chastise them. We make them pay by trying to hurt them in some way. Bringing it up over and over. Yeah, that's right. Bringing it up. We have a myriad of ways 
that we use to try to make those who hurt us, who offend us in some way, pay. And so the evangelical doctrine, which has this God who demands payment for sin, it rings true to something in human nature that really just facilitates our projecting that very kind of negative, I think most people would, I don't know that this is necessarily true, but many of us would view that as a negative aspect of human nature, and we project that onto God. It locks us into a kind of perception of God as simply all too human in the worst sense. So love keeps no record of wrongs. I mean, it's not that love is stupid and like literally forgets. It's that if you're a loving person, you may be very well aware of the wrongs, and yet you are also willing to forgive. You're not going to then have a checklist of 347 things that you have to do before I'm going to accept you. It's pretty much if that person comes in repentance or with an apology, like that's about it. I mean, we're just going to let, we're going to burn the whole list. Toward the end of your book, after you go through a lot of the details of trying to interpret all the things that Paul and others in the New Testament say about the atoning death of Jesus, you come back to one of the absolute highlights of the whole Bible, which is the parable of the prodigal son. You know, it strikes me that, and I think you say something similar in the book, it strikes me that on the standard way of thinking about atonement, we might need to change that story. You know, there's the resentful brother who doesn't want the sinner to be immediately forgiven. I mean, doesn't there need to be another brother too, like a, an innocent uh, 10-year-old brother who hasn't done anything wrong? And so the father sees the son coming from far off, you know, after he's blown everything in Vegas. He's going to come back and groveling to get anything he can from his father. The father sees him coming from afar, and he's like, oh, well... I'd really like to forgive this guy, but I really need to kill somebody first. Um, hey, Junior, can I kill you to pay for his sins so that I'm able to forgive him? And the Junior's like, yeah, I guess, Dad. I'm a very self-sacrificing brother. And so the father, you know, chops the head off of the 10-year-old. And now he's, now he's willing to greet the prodigal son with a big hug. But oh, that kind of ruins the story, doesn't it? <laughs> That does put a whole, uh, quite a, a, a darker uh, shade on that, uh, on that story than what we're used to. But, you know, there is a, uh, a sacrifice that's made in that story. The, the fatted calf is sacrificed, so to speak, but the purpose of that sacrifice is not in any sense from the story to satisfy any demand of the father for any kind of payment. Yeah, he doesn't go after it with a baseball bat. Yeah, the whole purpose of the slaughter of the fattened calf and the feasting on it was not to satisfy some uh, need in the father 
for a sacrifice, a payment, before he could accept his long-lost son. But the whole purpose of it was the father's demonstrating to the son that the son was welcome, that there was no barrier, there was no obstacle. The son came back with the idea that surely he was going to have to pay some price to get back into his father's good graces. And of course, the, his, his older brother uh, certainly shared that view. But, you know, we're talking about God's uh, not having or holding any kind of legal debt in his heart. It's not that God isn't offended by human wrongdoing. It's not that God's not grieved by it. It's not that God is blissfully unaware of it. The father in the, in the parable of the prodigal son was certainly painfully aware of his son's lostness. Undoubtedly had gotten reports about the excesses that his son had gone to in squandering his wealth and wild living. It wasn't that the father was unaware of any of that. It was that the father in the, in the parable did not hold it against the son, did not hold it as any kind of debt that the son had to pay. All the son had to do was to return to the father. That's all he had to do. And that is a, a uh, true, as accurate, as clear a portrayal of the atonement of Christ as I think the, uh, the New Testament offers us. That God is ready to welcome any who come to him and that the sacrifice of Christ was his demonstration of that. Just like the uh, killing of the, of the fattened calf was the, the father's demonstration of that to the prodigal son. So in your view, he's doing that in part to convince the son that he really is accepted because... Oh, not just in part, but that is the reason why. Well, it provides this big party for everybody to feast on. Well, I mean, you know, I'm sure that was part of it, too. The Lord's Supper is actually a celebration. The bread and the, and the wine, which are in remembrance of the atoning death of Jesus, that's a celebration. That's a, that's a fellowship meal in the context of the New Testament uh, portrayal of it. Robert, thanks for talking with us. Thank you, Dale. This week's thinking music has been the track Marathon Man by Jason Shaw. Next week, more with Robert Hatch on his book, The Passion and Persuasion. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.